Our reading is from Luke chapter 22, verses 1 to 38. Now the feast of unleavened bread, called the Passover, was approaching, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. And Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it? they asked. He replied, As you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters, and say to the owner of the house, The teacher asks, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them, so they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. Also a dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be greatest. Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles' Lord is over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom, just as my father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. 
Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the cock crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. Then Jesus asked them, when I sent you without purse, bag or sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, they answered. He said to them, but now if you have a purse, take it and also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. It is written, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. The disciples said, See, Lord, here are two swords. That is enough, he replied. Oh, good evening. If I was Nathan, I'd say, good evening. Thank you, that's good. That's good. Shall we pray before I start? Father God, thank you. Uh, thank you that you sent us your son, Jesus. And Lord Jesus, we thank you that you sacrificed yourself on the cross for each one of us. And Holy Spirit, we thank you that you guide us, you convict us, you encourage us. And Lord, I just pray now that as I speak, that you would... Touch our hearts, Lord, as open up our minds and our hearts so that we can be encouraged again tonight and give you our thanks as we praise you at the end of this evening, Lord. So guide me as I speak. Thank you, Father. Amen. Well, as, uh, as Saab said, we're starting this series, a short series, looking at the key events in the run-up to Easter, and we begin looking at this account in Luke of the Last Supper. And it's during that Last Supper, isn't it, that Jesus modelled to us the act of communion, something now Christians have been doing for more than 2,000 years. And when Jesus broke that bread for his disciples, what did he say? He said, this is my body broken or given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he's putting in motion, isn't he, something before he goes to the cross, before he's had his body broken. He's putting in place something for his disciples, something for us to do to remember what he's done for us. And it's that theme of remembering that I want to focus on tonight. Now, there are lots of uh, dates that we put in our annual calendars, aren't there? Dates that we think are important to remember. So just a bit of fun before we start into the text. Uh, If I throw out a date, I want you to just shout out what it is remembering. And there are bonus points, but no prizes. If you can remember the historical year at which these things uh, refer to. So, okay, let's start the first one. What about the 5th of November? What's that referring to? Gunpowder plot. Yes, it's a failed plot to kill King James in 1605 for the scholars amongst you. Okay, hopefully an easy one. What about the 11th of November? Armistice Day. Yeah, Armistice. And that's 
celebrating the peace treaty, isn't it? Signed at 11 o'clock in the morning on the 11th of November 1918, celebrating peace at the end of World War I. Okay, what about the 4th of July? Independence Day, yeah, the sort of uh, wonderful day for Americans when they broke away from bad old King George, his bad old taxes, and uh, that was signed, do you remember the date? Wow, look at that, 1776 for (laughs) real scholars. Okay, another one. What about the 28th of May? Our wedding day. Yeah, she remembers. (laughs) It's our wedding day. Isn't it important to celebrate an anniversary of your wedding? Because you make vows and promises to each other, don't you? And it's important once a year for us to remember that we made promises to one another. I'm glad you remembered. Thanks, Claire. That was a trick. She didn't actually know it was coming. Okay, what about 15th of April? Or the 15th of Nissan? It's Passover. It's Passover. And I think to really understand the events in Luke 22, it's helpful to remind yourself and understand the Jewish festival of Passover. Uh, So back in Exodus 12, uh, we read the instructions that God gave Moses for the Israelites. They'd been stuck in bondage and slavery to the Egyptians for over 400 years. Pharaoh had ignored nine plagues, and now the worst, the tenth and most terrible, was coming, because God was going to send an angel of death to kill firstborn of both men and animals in Egypt. And of course, the Israelites were instructed through Moses to take a one-year-old lamb without defect. They were to bring it into their household on the tenth of Nisan, 10th of April, and then on the evening of the 14th, they were to sacrifice it and then daub their doorways with the blood of the lamb. They were then uh, there to roast the lamb and eat it with bitter herbs and with unleavened bread. And they had to be dressed, ready to flee the very next day. And of course, that night, the Israelites obeyed. The angel of death came and killed the Egyptian firstborn. But he passed over the houses protected by the lamb, the blood of the lamb. And so thus began uh, another stage in God's redemption plan for the people of Israel as they fled Egypt uh, to the promised land. And God knows that we mere mortals, we very soon forget things, don't we? We're not very good, even important things. I don't think I've forgotten our anniversary, but we are very prone to forgetting, aren't we? And so God has given us throughout history certain key things that he wants us to remember, and he's given us ways of remembering. Now, for the Israelites, he wanted them to remember how he had enabled them to escape from Egypt. And he told Moses to instruct the people to celebrate this week-long festival of unleavened bread. And that began on the first day with the Passover meal. And in Exodus 12, we read this. When your children ask you, what does this mean? 
Then tell them that it's the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. And it's during that week of religious festival that chapter 22 is set. So let's unpack a few things that I think the Lord wants us to remember from these verses. Now, the first one I've plucked out, I think we need to remember the the Jesus who is the Lord of history, the Jesus who is actually in control. Now, I'm not going to regurgitate all the script that we've looked at tonight because it's quite long, but I'm taking it in four chunks. So I'm just looking at the first six verses. In that run-up to that first Easter, it looks like evil is having its way, doesn't it? We see Jesus is about to be unfairly tried and executed. Everything seems out of control. We see in these opening six verses the chief priests. What are they doing? They're plotting against Jesus. They want to get rid of him. They're afraid of what he's teaching, the following that he's gaining. They want to kill him. We see Satan, don't we, entering Judas, enticing him to betray Jesus. Satan always goes for our weaknesses, doesn't he? And in this instance, Judas's weakness would have been love of money the purse keeper for the disciples, the one that would have complained when that lady anointed Jesus with expensive perfume. And he's the one that ends up betraying Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. What a terrible thing to do. However, despite looking like evil is having its day, we need to remember that Jesus, the Lord of history, is actually in control of all events, even the ones that led up to his crucifixion. He's in control. And all of these events were part of God's redemption plan for each one of us, his plan to save us from bondage and from slavery. Satan can only act with permission from God. We read this morning, actually, in John, didn't we? It struck me recently. Lots of times we hear that people wanted to seize Jesus. And we keep reading, don't we, in John, that it was not yet the right time. So they were prevented from seizing him in that moment. But now God is allowing Satan to act in this moment And Judas's betrayal for 30 pieces of silver, you know, that was prophesied by Zechariah 600 years before these events. And Isaiah, we read a bit this morning, didn't we, just now. He talked about the suffering servant who would be pierced for our transgressions. A lamb led to slaughter. When did he write that? 750 years before these events. The events of that first Easter week, they were all part of God's wonderful plan. And even when things seem to be going wrong, it seems like the enemy's winning. Jesus is in control. Then we move on to verses 7 to 13, and we see more of Jesus' control, even in the little events of simply preparing the Passover meal. We see the instructions, don't we, that he gives Peter and John. What are they to do? They're to go into Jerusalem. They're to find a man who's carrying some water. That was unusual, because as we know, the women do all the hard work, and they should be carrying the water. But in this instance, they have to go to find the man. 
He would take them to a house. The owner of the house would then give them a room in which to prepare the Passover meal. And once in that specific room, then Peter and John could conduct the specific requirements for Passover. Have a look at verse 13, because verse 13 reminds us that even in the little details of finding a place to eat the Last Supper, even in those little details, Jesus was totally in control. Because we read, they left and found things just as Jesus had told them. So let's pause just for a second for an application for us. Have you, like me, been tempted in the last couple of years to feel that the world has got very dark and maybe you've despaired a little bit at the darkness of the world it does look like evil is winning satan is winning doesn't it that's how it feels and i think we have to remember and remind ourselves tonight jesus is in control he's in control of covid he's in control of the economy he's in control of war mr putin will one day have to bow at his feet and face the judgment of jesus jesus is in control of your health he's in control of your finances or your love life or your education whatever it is that we're worrying about remember this Jesus is in control. He's got a plan. It's a wonderful plan, even if we can't see it right now. So number one, let's remember our Lord is in control. Number two, and we're looking at verses 14 to 23 now in this section. Jesus wants us to realize and to remember that he is the Passover lamb. It wasn't an accident, was it, that these events, this first communion, were happening during Passover. Jesus wanted his disciples, he wants us, to make the link between the Passover in Egypt and what he was about to become, the sacrificial Passover lamb, enabling people to escape slavery, not slavery in Egypt, but the bondage and slavery of sin. And you can imagine the scene, can't you, in that, in that upper room. Jesus and the disciples, they're reclined at the table. They're having fellowship together, something that they will have done every year of their lives. They were there to remember the escape from Egypt, remember how the angel of death passed over the houses of the Israelites because of the blood of the Lamb. And you can imagine Jesus' thoughts as well at this time, can't you? He knows that this is his last meal with his friends. He knows that he's going to be betrayed by Judas. Can you imagine the pain of that, being betrayed by one of your best friends? He knows he's about to die a horrible death. And yet we read here, he's eager to eat this Passover meal before his suffering starts. He's connecting the meaning of Passover to the impending suffering and death to come. And he's presenting himself as the unblemished lamb. And then we get to these wonderful words, don't you? These words that we'll use again later in communion. And we read this, don't we? Eliza made me a little prop as well, I think. Thank you, darling. Uh, He took bread. This is proper unleavened flat bread. He took bread and what did he do? He broke it 
and gave it to us. Why? Do this in remembrance of me. It's a very visual act, isn't it? He's tearing the bread to remind us how his body was torn, the thorns in his head, the nails in his hands, the nails in his ankles, hanging from a cross with your joints being pulled out, the terrible thirst, the inability to breathe properly, the terrible, terrible pain. Jesus wants us to remember what he has done. Now, I don't think he wants us to remember. He's not saying, look at me, look how I suffered. I actually think he wants us to remember, not for his sake, but for our sake. So what is it that we should be remembering, particularly when we come to the communion table? Let's, let's think of some of the things we should be pondering uh, as we do this in remembrance of Jesus. So what does he want us to remember? He wants us to remember that he is the sacrificial lamb. He's releasing us from the bondage of sin. He wants us to remember that he has suffered as a substitute for us. He's taken the punishment that we deserve. Our rebellion against God deserves a death penalty. And yet Jesus is choosing to pay that price. He wants us to remember that we are forgiven. Do we really think that when we come to the table? We are forgiven about everything. Everything that you've done in the past. Every rebellion against God. Every thought you've thought. And of course, anything that you're going to do in the future. You are forgiven for everything. It's wonderful, isn't it? He wants us to remember that he has died for a purpose. What is that purpose? That purpose is that we can inherit life now and life eternal with our Father in heaven. Death will pass over each one of us. That's a wonderful thing he's done for us, isn't it? We don't need to be afraid of death anymore because of eternity. Now, I've left this last one to last. I think probably, certainly not least, Jesus wants us to remember that he loves us so much that he was willing to die for each one of us. Now, when I was preparing this, something struck me afresh. Do you know, there are lots of people in this world who have refused to receive Jesus as Lord and Savior. They've rejected what he did on that cross They've refused the free pardon that he's earned for them. So what have they done? They've actually made what he did on the cross pointless. And Jesus knew that. And what struck me was that even if you or I were the only ones in history that were going to receive what he did on the cross, he would have still gone to his death. Actually, that just makes me emotional just thinking about it. Let me say that again. Even if you or I were the only ones who would turn to him, he would still have gone to the cross. Isn't that unbelievable? If if we only remember one thing from tonight, just remember Jesus loves you that much.
And then Jesus carries on in this um, model communion service, and he reminds us of some hugely important relationship promises. He says this, in these words we, we say so often, this cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for you. Now, a covenant is an agreement, isn't it? It's a set of promises between two or more parties. So when we get married, when we sign the register, we're sealing our promises in a marriage covenant. And when the Israelites escaped from Egypt, God made and repeated a promise to them. He said, I claim you as my people. I will be your God. And then you will know that I am the Lord, your God, who freed you from oppression in Egypt. It's a promise, isn't it? It's a promise of relationship between God and the Israelites. And that old covenant mapped out how the relationship between God and the Israelites would work. He gave them the Ten Commandments. He gave them the law to obey. He gave them a system of animal sacrifices as a way of dealing with sin because sin needs blood sacrifice. And the people, of course, had to supply the animals. They had to attend the different religious rites. They had to obey. And yet the Old Testament is full of stories, isn't it? Full of stories of how the Israelites repeatedly failed to keep their covenant with God. And so the relationship between God and his people becomes broken. And now we hear Jesus talking about a new covenant, a promise of restored relationship between God and mankind. And I think there's some significant differences, significant promises for us to just quickly look through uh, in this new covenant. And the first one is that the key thing is that the relationship between man and God is mediated, it's made through Jesus. We read in John 14, don't we? I am the way, Jesus says. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Not through Muhammad or Buddha or anyone else. Through Jesus Christ. And our side of this covenant is so simple, isn't it? Our relationship with God is not based on how good we've been, how religiously obedient we are, how diligent we are in terms of coming to church. That's a good thing to do, but our relationship is primarily based not on following a set of difficult rules that we know that we're going to fail in. It's based on our relationship with Jesus Christ. And all we need to do is repent, to turn to him as saviour, accept what he's done on that cross. And it's Jesus who restores our relationship with God. And of course, by pouring out his blood for mankind, Jesus was dealing with sin forever. There's no need for repeat animal sacrifice. Instead, we've got the visual reminder of communion to remember all that Jesus has done. Jesus has done everything for us. And of course, again, this relationship now is not just refined to the Israelites. It's open to Jew and Gentile. All mankind can come to God through Jesus. 
And he seals that relationship, doesn't it? It's not written, this covenant is not written on tablets of stone. It's written in our hearts, sealed with the Holy Spirit. It's comforting, isn't it? To be reminded that our relationship with God is not dependent on us being perfectly obedient. It was earned through Jesus shedding his blood. I love these verses in 29 and 30. Jesus tells us he's conferred, bestowed his kingdom upon us so that we may eat and drink at his table. That's an amazing promise, isn't it? The kingdom of God is conferred upon us. So we should be joyful, shouldn't we? Every time we come to the table, we should be joyful when we remember that the promise of eternity in heaven, being part of Jesus' family now, extending into eternity, all made possible when that blood of Jesus was shed. Let us celebrate with thankful hearts every time we drink the wine at communion. Just a brief pause on another application. Are you somebody who feels undeserving of God? Are you someone who tries to earn his love by trying to be good or trying to work hard for the church? Because if so, when you take communion, simply praise Jesus for what he has done and for who he is. And remember that he loves you whether you're being good or not. He loves you whether you're working hard for him or not. Remember that we're all undeserving of him. And our only part in this new covenant promise is to accept what Jesus has done for each one of us. Then we get to these verses, the last chunk of this text from verse 21 onwards. And I find these verses, um, when Jesus starts to talk about the future kingdom and how we serve him in that kingdom, I find these verses both disappointing and encouraging. Jesus has just told his disciples, somebody is going to betray me. And the disciples can't believe it, can they? They, they, they say, surely not me. And of course, Matthew tells us the details that Judas is revealed as the betrayer. Why did the disciples not react to that terrible revelation? What would you have done? I think I would have gone for Judas. He was going to harm my Lord. And they're so worried, aren't they, about themselves. And what do we see the disciples switch to talking to, talking about? They switch to talking about who amongst them was the greatest? Isn't that sad? They have just had the honor of being served the first ever communion by Jesus Christ, the King of Kings himself. And all they can talk about is who amongst them is the greatest. They reflecting, aren't they, the sinful nature of all of us. They, we like to be right, don't we? We like to be first. We like to be seen as important. We like to be the best. We like people to admire us. We seek power and status. 
And at this last meal together, Jesus begins to prepare his disciples and us, of course, for how we are to serve him in this kingdom that he's bestowed upon us. And I think, fourthly, for tonight, in terms of what we need to remember, how are we to serve him? What attitude should we serve him with? And, of course, Jesus is telling us that we should serve others with servant hearts. We, we shouldn't be trying to lord it over other people. So if you're in a position of authority at work, or if you're a ministry leader, or if you're an elder in church or a pastor... Your job is to serve with everything that you have. And Jesus, the ultimate authority, demonstrated this heart attitude. How did he demonstrate it? The king of kings washed the disciples' stinky feet. That's the attitude we need to have, is just servant-heartedness. Now, when I look at and read about the uh, apostle Simon Peter, no, the disciple Simon Peter, he, I think he's my favorite, not just because I share a name with him, but <laughs> Jesus said to Simon, upon you, I will build my church. And yet we see Simon constantly making mistakes. He had such good intentions, didn't he? We read here, Lord, I am ready to die with you. I'm ready to go to prison for you. And yet when the crunch comes, he denies his Lord. He runs away. A little bit earlier, we saw Jesus telling his disciples that, they, that he would be killed. And then raised on the third day. What did Simon Peter say to his Lord? He took him aside. And he began to rebuke him. Can you imagine that? Telling off Jesus Christ. And what does, what does Jesus say to Simon? He says, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. And again, another story. We see Simon in the boat and he sees Jesus on the water and in his passion, he jumps out of the boat to run to his Lord. And then he sees the waves. And he, sees, he starts to sink. His, as momentarily, he loses faith in the power of Jesus. I, I love the disciples, particularly Simon's fallibility. I love that despite his feelings, his failings, Jesus built his church upon Simon. Isn't that an encouragement to each one of us? We want to serve the Lord, and yet we're fallible. We're sinful. We fail Jesus. We do things that we shouldn't. We fail to do things that God has called us to do. We can be prideful and self-serving. We doubt. We fear. In essence, we're human, aren't we? Just like the disciples. And yet, Jesus Christ still wants to use us. We read that he's praying for us. He's praying so that our faith will not fail. He's interceding with us with God his Father. He's washed us clean. He's forgiven us. He's promised us eternity. We've got a banquet to look forward to on the last day when that promise of our salvation is made complete. He's bestowed his kingdom upon each one of us. And he's using us 
to build that kingdom today. Hasn't Jesus been good to us? And he's given us the act of communion to remember all that he's done. Shall we, shall we pray? Lord God, we thank you that despite what we see in the darkness of today's world, we thank you that you are indeed in control. Help us to trust that, Lord, when we look at this world, to remember that you are in control. Lord, thank you that you've had a plan throughout history to save us. Help us to trust in that plan, Lord. Thank you, Jesus, Lamb of God. Thank you for taking our death penalty. Thank you for sacrificing yourself, Jesus. Thank you that you love each one of us so much that you endured the pain of the cross. You endured separation from your Father. You endured the weight of our sins on your shoulders. And we thank you so much for doing that for us, Lord. Thank you that you forgive us everything. Thank you that we are washed clean in your blood. Thank you for the hope that we have, that you've given us eternal life, life now in its fullest, and eternity with you. Thank you for that, Lord. Thank you that you've bestowed upon us your kingdom, and that we are now part of your family. Thank you for adopting us into that family, Lord. And thank you, Father, that despite our failings, despite our sins, you still call us to serve you as we live out your kingdom on earth. And we pray, Lord, that you give us servant hearts, strengthen us to do your will. And we thank you, Father, with everything that we have. And thank you, Jesus, that you have done it all for us. Amen.